The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Come, Holy Ghost, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy Spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Let us pray, O God, who didst instruct the hearts of thy faithful by the light of the Holy Ghost, grant us by that same Spirit to be truly wise, and ever to rejoice in its consolation. Through Christ our Lord, Amen. Hello and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm Thomas Nagley. I'm here with Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest of the Society of St. Pius V, and he also serves as the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you this evening? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. And you? Just the same, Father. It's good to see you. Yes, as you always. too. You too. Uh, Father, I would be remiss if I didn't wish you a very happy birthday today on behalf of oh, all of our you. viewers. So God bless you there. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. And uh, I received a plethora of uh, text messages wishing me a <laughs> Blessed birthday, and I appreciate every one of them. Okay. In fact, it's going to take me until my next birthday to respond to all of them. <laughs> but it's very kind of everyone, uh, especially their prayers that go with the greetings. I really appreciate that very much. Yes, no problem. Yeah, Father, we'll certainly keep you in our prayers, but uh, any other prayer requests that you have to begin the program tonight? Uh, quite a few, Tom, yes. Well, I mean, there are actually hundreds and hundreds of them. All of those in the Immaculate Heart of Mary prayer list. Uh, I really thank Mary Brueggemann for her work with that to uh, uh, be the, the person who, who monitors that and make sure all of those intentions are posted. Uh, it's a great work. And uh, also we have our own Immaculate Conception Church prayer list, as you know, and often, often the two of them coincide with each other. Um, I do ask continued prayers, please, uh, for uh, Cheryl Johnson uh, and also for Paul Riley, and the families, uh, you know, the Johnson and the Riley families there. Um, uh, both uh, Paul and Cheryl are quite ill. Uh, Paul, as a result of an, of an automobile accident, as you know, and uh, Cheryl, as a result of an aneurysm. So uh, we're grateful that uh, they were able to keep them with us. Uh, God hasn't called them. We're asking our Lord now to, uh, to heal them both, bring them back to health again. And uh, Richard Wilt also is suffering right now. Please keep Rich in your prayers. Remember Nancy and Laurie Nelson and their cousin, Monsignor Handwerker. Uh, Monsignor Handwerker also has cancer that is being treated. We pray for him. And also, please keep in your prayers Monica Condit. Monica will be undergoing surgery tomorrow. Uh, so please pray for her and her family. Pray for Rosanna Fiore. Rosanna is very ill. And Bernie Kunkel, and you might know Bernie Kunkel rather well, right? He's a relative of yours, Tom, right? That's right. And uh, he's undergoing a series of very delicate surgeries involving multiple surgeons. So please keep Bernie in your prayers. He's been suffering for quite some time now. Uh, also pray for Mary Stevelock, and also an uh, intention very dear to my heart, uh, Maria Bischel, Maria, one of our graduates now who... Uh, is uh, now home from the, from the convent because she's very ill. So please keep Maria in your prayers. We pray that uh, 
she'll get a good diagnosis and good treatment and uh, be as good as new or better as soon as, as, soon as possible. So please uh, ask our Lord to have mercy on all these good souls. We had a question last time about the Red Mass for those uh, in uh, our judges and attorneys and so on, our judiciary. We need to pray for them. And uh, we also need to pray for all of our law enforcement uh, personnel and all of our medical personnel. They're all being involved in very special things these days. And uh, they who are supposed to be uh, helping us and uh, protecting us and so on, um, unfortunately, they find themselves put upon to uh, um, do things that are not in our best interest. So we need to pr pray for them uh, very, very uh, persistently to pray for them. So anyway, Tom, there you are. All right, very good. Thank you, Father. Uh, well, Father, we had uh, several uh, viewer email and also some current events on the agenda for tonight. But uh, I guess first, I know many of our viewers are very anxious to hear your thoughts on um, Bishop Strickland of the Novus Ordo uh, just recently getting uh, forcibly removed, I guess, from his uh, from his diocese in Texas, the state of Texas, mm -hmm. and. Uh, I guess Bishop Strickland said uh, in response to that that uh, he was he was forced out because some of the forces in the Novus Ordo Church are trying to change the teaching of our Lord. Um, said some other interesting things, but Father, what was your um, reaction when you heard this uh, this news that Bishop Strickland was removed from his diocese? Some were calling it shocking. Um, did you find this shocking at all, Father? What was shocking to me was how long it took to have this happen. <clears throat> I mean, of course, it was inevitably going to happen. Um, as long as this uh, Bishop Strickland um, said Catholic things, um, he could not be at peace with Francis, or Francis would not be at peace with him, because Francis is a modernist through and through. Francis, in fact, is is the the quintessential modernist. Right? He's a modernist in every way, thoroughgoing modernist. Um, and so, when he encounters anything Catholic. Uh, he wants to crush it. Um, you know, the Bishop Strickland of Tyler, Texas, has been making comments for many months now about, uh, even about Francis personally, and is, uh, you know, attacking the faith and so on. Now, for, uh, Bishop Strickland has come out against the, um, the homosexual quasi nuns out in, I mean, the abomination nuns out in Los Angeles, <clears throat> and actually led a prayer rally against them, against the, the Dodgers, um, welcoming them and awarding them, rewarding them. Um, so, you know, this is against the LGBTQIA, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, agenda, which Francis favors entirely. Um, and so um, the problem is, though, that uh, Bishop Strickland has gone along with the Novus Ordo. I mean, he really has gone along with the Novus Ordo. He just wants a conservative Novus Ordo. He wants a Novus Ordo with a Catholic, at least veneer. He wants to keep <clears throat> um, articles of faith, of the Catholic faith, at the same time uh, going along with the new Mass, the new sacraments, and all the changes of Vatican II. And so he hasn't yet faced the fact that these two things are antithetical. The traditional Catholic belief, faith, doctrines, and the practice of the Novus Ordo. 
The Novus Ordo is a religion of modernism. It is the practice of modernism. And if, if, uh, if Bishop Strickland is going to reject modernism, he necessarily has to reject the Novus Ordo in its entirety also. Pope St. Pius X said that modernism is the synthesis of all the heresies. So how can there be peace between traditional Catholic belief, traditional Catholic doctrine, traditional Catholic faith, and the practice of modernism with its new mass and its new sacraments and all the rest? <clears throat> so Bishop Strickland himself is kind of living a contradiction here. He must feel that tension somehow. <clears throat> and when he speaks out about some of these egregious examples of anti-Catholicism on the part of Mark Francis, not only is he having to face the, the contradiction that he's living by being part of the Novus Ordo, but he's also almost daring Francis to do something about it. And inevitably, Francis was going to, to do this. But even now, Bishop Strickland is living in a as kind of fantasy because he says, well, I can't really blame Francis for this because he's being pressured into this. Oh, really? By whom? <laughs> By the people he's appointed? Uh, they're, they're, no, no, it was Francis himself who did this uh, to Bishop, Bishop Strickland. It was Francis who wanted your head on the platter, okay? And... Uh, He's got plenty of dancing girls to demand it, but he himself wanted you gone um, because he wants what you represent much of the time gone, and that is uh, a denunciation of the more egregious things, that, the more outrageous things he's saying and doing. So he finds you an obstacle, more than an irritant. Uh, you have become a rallying point for those who still have some faith left in the Novus Ordo. <clears throat> and, uh, and Francis cannot abide that. Um, so inevitably, he, he's going to have to move against you. Uh, I mean, for those who don't know, uh, uh, Bishop Strickland, Strickland was fired by Francis, essentially, as Bishop of the Diocese there in Texas. <clears throat> and a certain Bishop Joe Vasquez, who already has been denounced by some parties as being involved in a cover-up of abuse and so on. He's been made the administrator, temporary administrator of the diocese in uh, Bishop Strickland's absence. So now what becomes of this Bishop Strickland, I don't know. I'm praying, hoping and praying that he will see uh, in all its clarity the contradiction between the new order of religion that came out of Vatican II, and the true traditional Catholic faith, which I believe he still holds. And uh, seeing that contradiction, I pray that he has the, the courage to simply declare himself entirely for the faith and to practice the traditional Catholic faith. And for, unfortunately, he himself was ordained and consecrated, ordained a priest and consecrated within the Novus Ordo, by the Novus Ordo, for the Novus Ordo. And that still holds him. And, of course, there, one has to ask, you know, about this ordination and consecration rites, too, because they are not designed to produce Catholic priests. They were not meant to do that, or to produce Catholic bishops. They were meant for modernists. They were meant to ordain modernists and consecrate modernists. And, uh, again, you know, the modernism is the synthesis of all heresies, so one has to 
really question those rights and examine them very carefully to see, uh, and not only the rights themselves, but who is performing the rights, what, what even faith was, was there on the part of those who, who performed those ceremonies. And you, you carry that back to the origins of the Novus Ordo and you realize it was all conceived in modernism. So, um, but I, I still am hoping and praying that Bishop Strickland will, will see the reality of all this and completely uh, reject the new order and all of its pomps, right? <laughs> And uh, so, anyway, do pray for him. Um, so was I surprised? As I say, I was surprised that it took this long. At first, Francis was pressuring him to resign, and he wouldn't resign. So Francis just had to uh, get out the axe and uh, do away with him. I, I guess Francis would have considered it to be a victory in his own right if he'd gotten him to resign. But... Uh, but no, no, um, Archbishop Vigano says this was a, like a raw, blatant misuse of power. So how so? I mean, if, if Bishop Strickland continues to say that Francis is the Pope, that he is, quote unquote, the vicar of Christ on earth, which Francis does not say anymore, mm -hmm. but if Bishop Strickland says so, I mean, how can he complain about this? Of course, he would just have to uh, say, well, okay, this is the decision of a a reigning pontiff of the Catholic Church, he has the right to do this, and I should simply accept it and uh, without complaint. Um, but uh, if he says that his removal was because of forces in the Church wanting to change the teaching of our Lord, and uh, thus to apostatize eventually, essentially, um, and his removal was uh, the unique decision of, of Francis himself personally intervening to do this, then what does this say? How can he not say and face the fact that it is Francis who wants to change the teaching of Christ? How can anybody deny that now that, that Francis has already said he's creating, he is actually literally creating a new church? Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm, I'm hoping and praying that uh, Bishop Strickland uh, just comes to face reality on this issue. Father, why do you think people have uh, people were so surprised by this? Some say even some were even shocked by this. Why? Why is that? Why are Why are they so? Why is it such a big deal when they hear uh, some Novus Ordo bishop uh, say? I mean, a few ostensibly Catholic things, and uh, to have this reaction from a Novus Ordo pontiff. Why is that so shocking? I, I don't know anybody who's been following what Francis has been saying and doing should not be surprised by this at all. I mean, even LifeSite News uh, carried uh, an article. After all that they've said, acknowledging Francis's anti-Catholic um, uh, you know, thought and behavior, uh, why would Francis do something like this? And I'm thinking, well, what kind of a question is, is that at this point, at this juncture? Uh, the question should be rather, why? what would prevent Francis from doing such a thing? What would prevent him from doing it? Yeah. Um, the only thing that one could conjecture that would keep Francis from making a move like this is because he was afraid of the backlash. But Francis is not afraid of the backlash. Why? Well, he, he wants those who have the traditional Catholic faith to leave. He really does want them gone. 
they are obstacles to his whole plan. This whole plan is to create a, a new synodal church of the world. You know, um, just recently, Francis himself came out and directed his PACT, his Pontifical Academy for Theology, right? Uh, to completely abandon deductive theology and follow inductive theology, the inductive method of theology. I don't know how many people actually even paid much attention to that uh, or even understood the significance of it. But even to suggest this, on part of Francis, let alone to, to order this, <coughs> says in just two words, the entire program of modernism. The entire program of modernism is encapsulated in the words inductive method or inductive theology. Um, you see, modernism, and when I say modernism, I'm, I'm referring to all of those practitioners of modernism, true believers of modernism, Francis being first in line, they, they have redefined the word faith. We've talked about this before. <clears throat> we know Catholics believe that faith is actually a virtue or a power of the intellect. God gives his grace to the human mind, the human intelligence, <clears throat> to know truths about God by divine revelation, and to believe them as true, even though the human mind cannot understand them. It is simply of the very nature of divine revelation that involves truths about God, and truths, therefore, that are beyond the power of human comprehension. And so the human mind needs grace from God to assent to the truths that God reveals about himself, the fact that he is a trinity of persons, the fact that the Son of God, the second person of that trinity, became man as our Savior, that he was born into this world, that he died on the cross for us in reparation for our sins, to redeem us, that he rose from the dead, that he, he left us the, the very sacrifice of his body and blood, soul, and divinity, here among us as a continual testimony to his love and his sacrificial death for us in the Holy Mass. All of these things involve mysteries that the human mind cannot comprehend, could not even discover for ourselves if we went looking for them. God would have to reveal these things to us. This is the very nature of true faith and true religion. True faith, if it comes from God, and let's face it, if it's not from God, it's, there can't be any true faith. It's just something we made up for ourselves. But true faith must come from God, and it must have supernatural mysteries. The naturalists in philosophy and the, the rationalists in philosophy start their philosophy by saying that you cannot, you cannot believe anything that you can't understand. It's wrong. It's an insult to the human mind for a person to actually believe mysteries of faith the only thing worthy of man is what he can figure out for himself. So the naturalists and the rationalists, from the very beginning, ignore the question, of, and they, they actually outlaw, as it were, a matter of divine revelation of mysteries about God. They forbid you to believe that. <clears throat> Unfortunately, the modernists 
are at peace with that. And, you know, we turn to the question of what modernists think of faith then, therefore. Because the modernists <clears throat> consider themselves believers, but what do they believe and why? What is faith to them? Well, it is, you might say, almost the exact opposite of what the Catholic Church believes about faith. It believes what faith really is. The modernist starts off by saying faith is not a virtue of the intellect at all. It's not even a virtue. It is an action. An action rooted where? Not in your intelligence for truth. It is rooted in your religious sense. That everyone has a religious sense that's part of the human condition. <clears throat> in other words, we have a certain feeling about the divine, that there's something beyond ourselves. And that religious sense calls out for something more, something beyond ourselves, something perhaps even beyond the world around us. The modernist, as St. Pius X says, tells you that your intelligence cannot know anything about God or anything beyond this world. But the modernist also, according to St. Pius X in his encyclical Pacendi, condemning the errors of the modernist, says that the modernist says you can't even know the world around you because your intelligence cannot actually connect, as it were, with reality. So for the modernists, we're living in a world of phenomena. It's almost like, like illusion. <clears throat> we have impressions of things around us as being real, whatever that is. They're real to us individually, but we can't really reach what they actually are. Our minds, in other words, according to the modernists, are not made for truth. An utter and complete denial of the, of the, of the biblical understanding that we are made in the image of God by the, a power of our intellect to know truth and a power of our will to love what is good. Modernists doesn't have any concept of that, doesn't even allow a concept of that. The modernist says that rather the religious sense in you craves the divine and you find it. Your religious sense actually experiences something in nature, something powerful, something that you can't explain for yourself <clears throat> because it is beyond your ability to explain, but not in terms of truth, in terms of experience. You experience the divine in some kind of mystical way. That, for the modernist, is faith, your experience of the divine. Everyone has this, this sense of, uh, this religious sense, and um, everyone can experience this divine, and that experience is your faith. It comes down to basically something emotional uh, that something, stirs up something in you, the religious sense, they call it, seems to be much more related to your emotions, certainly more related to your emotions and your intellect, more your feelings than anything. And that you come away feeling, I have come somehow come into contact with the divine, whatever that might be. And I say whatever that might be because People all through the world, throughout history, have experienced this. Even the pagans experience the divine. They experience it in nature. And it's a real experience of the real divine. Even the pagans do so.
in their worship of pagan goddesses like Pachamama. They experience the divine too. There's real faith there, according to the moderns. Real faith in the real divine. They've experienced it, and it manifests itself in this way as, a, as Pachamama. Francis is, is actually a modernist to the core in that he really believes these things. He really believes that in paganism, indigenous religions, and so on, there are genuine experiences of the divine which are true faith. And we have something to learn from these. We all do. Catholics experience the divine in their own way. In the past, Catholics have experienced the divine in their mass and their sacraments. But no longer. Francis says, these are no longer accurate ways of really experiencing the divine, which is why they want to make the old ways go away. Because now we have to go on to the new ways of experiencing the divine. And that's why Francis wants to turn it back to the paganism. Because there you had genuine experience of the divine. Francis tells the imam in Abu Dhabi that God wills all religions. Because again, the divine, right, is too great to express itself or reveal itself in any one religion. Uh, the divine can reveal itself in all the different religions to all the different peoples and let them experiencing, experience him by the religious sense. And they're all true as long as they grow, except one thing. There's one experience of the divine that is no longer tolerable, that must be suppressed, and that is the experience of the divine that you find in the traditional mass. That no longer corresponds to the divine any longer, Francis says, and it has to be left behind. The one experience of the divine in the whole world that now is unacceptable is yours and mine as a traditional Catholic. Our, quote-unquote, experience of the divine in the traditional Catholic faith. That's unacceptable anymore. As far as Francis is concerned, that's not the divine. Now we have to move on. <laughs> All of this actually is wrapped up in the idea of inductive theology with Francis and his concept of faith. The deductive theology is where you start with divine revelation, principles and, uh, of divine revelation, which Francis just calls rigid formulas, but the Catholic Church understood to be the doctrines of the Catholic faith. Those things, Francis detests those things. He despises those things. In the encyclical against modernism, St. Pius X says, the modernists find these things the enemy of true faith. Because as long as one holds to these truths of the past, as revealed by our Lord, and as guarded by the Holy Ghost in the history of the Church and her tradition, as long as one holds to these old, in Francis's mind, stale and worn-out doctrines, these prevent one from being open to the spirit of surprises and experiencing the divine today in a different way because we're stuck in those old formulas. Like, you might be stuck in quicksand. In fact, the modernists, as St. Pius X says, say <clears throat> that if you do not give up those formulas and move on and experience the divine in continually new ways, then your faith is, is dying and the church is going to die with that. <coughs> 
So the modernist thinks he's actually rescuing the church from a death like that, from being ossified or petrified by cutting us loose from the old doctrines and enabling us to launch into the deep and experience and launch into the unknown and, and cultivate new experiences of the divine and new doctrines, new formulas that are true for us today. They will not be true for the next generation, perhaps, because they'll have a different experience of the divine. But we have to, according to the modernists, have our own personal experience of the divine, apart from anything else that the church has taught us in the past, so that in those experiences of the divine that you and I have today, that's where we find true faith, the true faith of today. And all of that comes into play with Francis's synod on synodality, because Francis and his modernists don't look to divine revelation as God revealing through the prophets and through his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, as St. Paul says in, first, in the first chapter of Hebrews, chapter one, verse 1, that God, who has spoken at various times through the prophets, now in our times has spoken through his own Son. The modernists say, that's not where you have to look for your doctrine. In fact, you can't cling to that, to let all that go, so you're free to experience the divine in your own way, in your own time. So that's where we have to go for Francis and the modernists. We have to go to modern man. We have to go to modern man, <clears throat> whether he's in the cities or whether he's in the jungle. We have to go and we have to bring him in. And we have to get his testimony. That's the inductive method. Survey. Take surveys. Survey all of these people. Ask, well, what are you experiencing the divine? How are you experiencing the divine right now in your life? <clears throat> You have them fill out these questionnaires as to where they're finding the divine in their life right now. Francis spelled all this out back in 2013. Um, and he, he actually said, this is where the church has to head now. And we, the church has to actually survey the people wherever they happen to be in their lives and however they have to be living their lives right now. And taking that survey then, we have to begin to put all that together because making those the answers of the people about what they're experiencing about the divine coalesce. The bishops have to make all of that come together and put it all together. All these surveys. Notice that the, the whole idea of a synod on synodality was the thousands of surveys being sent out. This is precisely the modernist concept. These surveys are essential to the modernist idea of how we find out what the faith is right now. We have to get people surveyed about what they're experiencing right now. The bishops then have to kind of boil it down into kind of a soup, and they have to serve it to Francis. Francis then has to savor the soup, and he himself has to reduce it all to formulas, that's what he says explicitly in 2013 when he became the Pope of the New Order. He said, this is what the pontiff does. This is his ministry, to reduce the experiences of the faithful into some kind of formulas that everyone that has to accept. Okay? 
And uh, this, is the, this is quintessential modernism, as you say, the very essence of modernism. So the divine reveals himself through the multiplicity of individuals, thousands of individuals who are experiencing the divine. We have to be surveyed about what their experience is. And then ultimately, that has to filter its way through the bishops, well, the priests, the bishops, and so on, until finally Francis can actually boil it down to some simple formulas that everyone has to accept. Okay, this is the expression of the true faith as it is being experienced by the people right now. Right now. Um, the inductive method is the survey. The, the inductive method takes the information from the multiplicity of individuals and their experiences. That's what induct, the inductive method is. That's why when you conduct inductive theology, as Francis demands it, you are doing exactly that. We are going by surveys. We're surveying the people about their experiences of the divine in their lives today. And um, so forget the whole idea of divinely revealed truth coming to us from prophets or even from the Son of God. All the Son of God could reveal to us is his personal experience of the divine at that time. But that doesn't necessarily correspond to the people's experience of the divine today. Francis is busy discerning what that is. And he's going to tell us what it is. And that's where it all comes down. And it's going to come down in the one world religion. Um, and, well, unfortunately, I, I think it's heading directly into the hands of the Antichrist. So why would a Bishop Strickland have any place in this? Why would a Bishop Strickland want any place in this? Why would he want to legitimize this and say, well, we have to cling to this, even though I'm being uh, sacked? Why would I want to lend any scintilla of legitimacy to this and, and pretend there's anything Catholic about this? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Father, do you think that, uh, that does Francis actually uh, believe these things to be true that I mean this inductive theology that you described this this modernist way of thinking this modernist notion of, of faith um, or whatever you want to call it does he actually um, believe these things to be true I mean is he uh, or, or is he embracing modernism because he I mean out, out of hatred for the truth out of hatred for for Christ church or does does he actually believe that um, you know he actually embraces modernism believes that it is true and he's actually trying to implement these things for the good of the church? Well, Tom, that's a very good question. In the encyclical Bashendi in 1907, Pope Pius X indicated the modernists believed that they were really the saviors of the church because if the church's belief was not uh, able to evolve mm -hmm. but was stuck in, in, in old formulas, when Christ promised the apostles that the Last Supper to send the, the Holy Ghost, he, he did not say he was sending the Holy Ghost to, to teach us new doctrines, but rather to bring to our minds whatever Jesus himself had taught us. Yeah. And so the doctrines taught by our Lord were fixed forever, right, permanently, and should never be changed at all. That was the work of the Holy Ghost. For Francis now, 
He has replaced the Holy Ghost with a spirit of surprises involving constant changes. See. And, uh, but the modernists say, according to St. Pius X, that if the church doesn't change, the church will die. Because being alive means you're changing. And if you stop changing, you're dead. Actually, we think if you stop, we think if you die, you decay, and then you really change. You know, you lose your identity, basically, you become a corpse. Francis is the other way around. As a modernist, you have to continually change your beliefs. But according to the evolution of human experience of the divine, in order for the church to live. And uh, so that Papias the Tenth says they are reformers and they actually have this, this madness of their pride and their audacity uh, to think that they are saving the church from dying because without them, the church would die. <clears throat> the ironic thing about all this <clears throat> is that Francis is saying we reject the doctrinalism of the past. We need to do inductive theology. We need to find revelation where it's really happening in the lives of the people. And they can tell us who God is right now, what they're experiencing. As I say, the ironic thing is, when it comes right down to it, who is ultimately going to make the decision as to who God is right now? Is it really the people taking a read on who God is, reporting then to the bishops who kind of um, translate or distill that down, and Francis then is going to uh, kind of turn it out into formulas for everyone to believe, to assent to. Ultimately, Francis has started with an agenda already. He knows what he wants to achieve. I mean, he wants to basically uh, consecrate the the LGBT um, uh, perversion. He wants to um, make that okay, basically. He wants to legitimate that, legitimize that in the church. And um, this last synod, um, his, his intention was to bring that out clearly. Now he's deferred it to 2024 again because there is opposition. He says there's still work to be done in softening up the minds of the people to accept this. So we'll give it another year. Okay, he's willing to do that. But he's made it very clear this is where he wants to go. So, as I say, the ironic thing is the modernist says we're getting the read from the people about what they believe. But the fact is the modernist has already determined in his own mind what they should be believing. And that is what the modernist thinks. The modernist has his own personal faith experience. And as far as he's concerned, that's who God is right now. And surveying all these people isn't going to change his mind about who God is. He's the modernist. He's the genius. He's the one who really knows who God is. So all of this has a predetermined conclusion. It's going to come out with Francis's idea of who God is right now. All of this is going to lead to Francis making a proclamation, okay, saying, ultimately, this is what I agree with, and this is what I'm going to tell you in these formulas, my personal idea of who God is or should be, and who you think he should be. That he's pro-LGBTQ and all the rest. And don't tell me otherwise, because if you tell me otherwise, <clears throat> I'm going to shut you down, right? Why? Well, because you do not correspond to my modernist belief. 
I don't care what you're experiencing. You're experiencing it all wrong, if you contradict me. This is the pride and the audacity of the modernist. So I think St. Pius X would answer that question that you asked, you know, what is he thinking? Does he hate the church and therefore he's a modernist? Or uh, is he a modernist because he hates the church? And the answer is actually yes. There's a symbiotic relationship between the two. I think Francis, uh, my own personal thought on the subject for what it's worth is that Francis just is a kind of a rebel and he's anti-doctrinal by just his natural personality and temperament. I mean, he, he tells you that when he was a child and he was serving the traditional mass, he and his fellow server would try to jumble up the Latin to throw the priest, get the, confuse the priest while he's saying the prayers at the foot of the altar. Uh, they would drop the missile because it was too heavy. I mean, they were making a shambles of the mass back then. This is what this is Francis's childhood, and I think he's still doing the same thing now as an old man. He's basically making a mess of everything, as he says, and I think he does have a certain contempt for the Catholic faith. The fact that he he found modernism now to express himself in his own rebellious, revolutionary, uh, egotistical approach to to life, I think just. Uh, is a good fit for him, and it increases his hatred for the faith. So I think there's an interplay between the two. His hatred for the true faith and his embracing of modernism, I think, is is kind of a uh, a vicious circle or cycle, you know, that plays itself out. And the more anti-Catholic he becomes, the more modernist he becomes, the more modernist he becomes, the more anti-Catholic he becomes. It becomes like a, some kind of a tornado. Yeah. Um, in his case, kind of a firestorm, and um, and this is where they're taking him. Now, you know, uh, Walter Ma- uh, Michael Matt Michael Matt um, of the Remnant has uh, raised this question about well the 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 visibility of the church. Right, we have to hold that the church is a visible organization. There are two big questions these days with people who are dealing with the Francis phenomenon. And one is the idea of apostolic succession, which we talked about recently, that you have to have apostolic succession to be Catholic. And the other thing is the visibility of the church, right? And they're trying to address the Francis question with these two ideas. And um, we talked about apostolic succession, that that's not just a matter of continual, you know, ordinations going from one generation to another. The first uh, criterion for apostolic succession is having the apostolic faith and the continuity of faith. So right away, you'd have to say, that's not in Francis's favor, that's against him. I mean, we can't say, well, we need Francis because we need apostolic succession, while Francis is busy condemning the idea of Catholic faith and Catholic doctrine, the very concept of it he's rejecting. So uh, as I say, the question of apostolic succession, Francis fails on that. But the question of then the visibility of the church, they fall back on that and say, well, without Francis, then there is no visibility of the church. They say, well, how can you say that? They say, well, you have to have a pope to have the visibility of the church. And then you realize, well, that can't be true. 
I mean, there have been 260 interregna. And so you mean to say when a pope dies and there is no pope, the church's visibility somehow becomes invisible or lapses or whatever? And they say, well, no, no, even when there's a pope who died, the church still has the potential to elect a new pope. And so you're saying that the visibility of the church somehow is, is on vacation or somehow it's, it's lapsed during that time and become only potential visibility? And only when the church elects a new pope does the church actually become visible again? I mean, how can you say that you have to have a living pope for the church to be the visible organization that Christ established? When popes die and you have to elect another pope, what happens to the visibility of the church during those, those times? In other words, what they're saying is nonsense. Um, the church is visible, a visible organization, with or without a reigning pontiff okay, at any given moment. And yes, the true church does have the potential to elect a, a supreme pontiff and a vicar of Christ on earth. That's true. Uh, now, they may say, well, if Francis is not, if you question Francis being the pope, then where are you going to get a new pope? And I, they say that you're automatically saying that there can't be another pope. That's not what we're saying. We're just saying that you're posing a dilemma here. We're just saying a pope doesn't even have to have the faith. So the criterion for being a valid pope is lower than the criterion for even being a practicing Catholic in the pew on Sunday. That, you know, you can't even, you know, a, a Catholic, a person can't even come up and receive Holy Communion worthily if he doesn't have the Catholic faith. And you're saying you don't even need the Catholic faith to be a Pope, the Vicar of Christ on Earth. That doesn't make any sense. As a Catholic, it makes no sense whatsoever. And you're also approaching the idea that you're saying, yes, he's the Pope, and no, we don't have to do anything he says. They're, they're very much rapidly approaching that, that idea. And again, that doesn't compute for a Catholic. So we're saying they're proposing a dilemma here, but let them not reach for false arguments, like um, such as, you know, if, when a pope dies, then logically speaking from what I'm saying, what they're saying actually, is that the visibility of the church is somehow lapses into passivity or potentiality only until a new pope is elected. It doesn't work that way. It never did. Now, the church is a visible organization by its very nature, as Christ established it, right? Uh, whether there's a reigning, reigning pontiff or not, the church is a visible organization. It's not the Pope who makes the church a visible organization. It is Christ himself. Um, the Pope is the visible head of the church on earth. That's true. But the fact is, he's not personally the one who makes the church a visible organization. The church of its nature is established by Christ is a visible organization. Um, so both of those arguments uh, on the basis of apostolic succession, on the basis of the visibility of the church, uh, they, fought, they fail to address this, this question of Francis. I mean, look, look, the, uh, you know, this whole question of modernism, um, this gentleman named Terry Barber, who started this uh, I guess he has a radio podcast or an internet podcast called Virgin Most... Virgin Most Powerful? powerful? Virgin Most Powerful, I think I it think is. So. Um, he has a Bishop Strickland he, Hour. He has a Bishop Strickland Hour. And he is saying, uh, and I don't know that Bishop Strickland himself has, has ratified this yet, but Terry Barber is saying that, that the Cardinal DiNardo, okay, Cardinal DiNardo, 
who is actually over uh, Strickland, has told Bishop Strickland that there is no deposit of faith. Quote, unquote, they say. There is no deposit of faith, which is exactly what I just said about the modernists. They don't believe there is a deposit of faith, sacred scripture, sacred tradition, with unchanging truth, okay? He says there's no such thing. Is that a heresy? Oh, yeah. I mean, it basically comes down to apostasy, apostasy, really. So, again, I mean, you have this cardinal appointed by uh, Francis who actually... Uh, is coming out and actually telling Bishop Strickland, who has just been sacked, right, that there is no deposit of faith. And you ask yourself, well, how is this possible? And um, how is this man could even be considered a Catholic, let alone a Catholic cardinal, and have any authority in the church whatsoever from Francis? And you, you have Francis himself, who actually says, we need a new theology, which does not always correspond to the Christian face of God. And you ask, well, if their new theology doesn't correspond to the Christian face of God, then whose face does it correspond to? I mean, the indigenous people's face? I mean, is it, if it's not the face of Christ, and Christ, your Lord said, if you're not with me, you're against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters, <clears throat> then if it's not the face of Christ, is it the face of Antichrist? Is that the new face of their new theology? What are they getting at here? What is Francis actually getting at here? So people are reacting to that, rightly so, but they they need to understand that it all goes back to what we've known all along, that Francis is a modernist, and he's completing the work of Vatican II, which is the the modernist revolution, to overturn the church. And so, no, we cannot be surprised that Francis would fire a Bishop Strickland. We cannot be surprised at anything Francis does from now on. He's rejected the faith, he's anathematized the Catholic faith and the Catholic religion, and he's trying to replace it with something else. Something that disturbed me very much recently was this report. Francis actually had about 7,000 children come to the Vatican. From all over the world, 7,000 children gathered in the Paul VI audience hall, which is an abomination. You've seen the photographs which show it looking like you're inside the head of a, a snake, yeah. right, with the fangs, right where Francis is seated, right? <clears throat> Incredible, but true. <clears throat> and uh, when you walk into the place, you really do get a very creepy feeling in this audience hall of Paul VI. But in any case, <clears throat> Francis took pre-selected questions from these 7,000 children, and these, they were pre-selected on the basis of how they were directed to climate change. The whole idea of this, of this uh, seance of Francis with these little children from all over the world was to promote nature worship and the devotion of climate change as the new religion. And Francis was giving discourses there with the children about climate change. And he actually had the children uh, answer, can children save the earth? And, and he asked them, can you children save the earth? And Francis said, yes, you can change. You can save the earth, he tells the children. Because you are simple and you understand that to destroy the earth is to destroy us. 
We must guard the earth. Do you understand this? If you destroy the earth, you destroy yourself. That's all that's left. You and the earth, right? You're part of the earth. That's all there is of you. And then he went on to say, let's say it all together, slowly, without shouting. Let's say it all together. To destroy the earth is to destroy us. And he had to repeat it over and over and over and over again. To destroy the earth is to destroy us. If we destroy the earth, we destroy us. Altogether, he who destroys the earth destroys us. Altogether, to destroy the earth is to destroy us. So who are the destroyers? The destroyers of the earth. They're the real enemy. Have the children chanting this. One who destroys the earth destroys us. Talk about like the Nazi, you know, name the enemy, right? Point the finger. Hamas and all the rest, right? Anathematize those who are destroying the earth. They are they are the villains these days, and they must be destroyed, right? Get the children chanting that. <clears throat> what is Francis saying when he has the children chanting over and over again, nature is our future. He had the children chanting that. Nature is our future. He never talked about faith. He never talked about the Catholic faith. The idea of the children's souls, saving their souls, our Lord Jesus Christ, his sacrificial death on the cross, the mass, the sacraments, not one word come out of Francis's mouth. <clears throat> nature is our future. We are the children of nature. He who destroys nature destroys us. Right? This is Francis there chanting this like some great uh, pagan, pagan priest cheerleader. And the sad thing is that the children are all chanting it with him under his guidance. This is what he's teaching mankind. I mean, how can anybody th not think of Francis as the, the little beast of the apocalypse? He was calling everyone to worship the dragon. Um, it just, I don't understand. Why would we be surprised? You know, it all gets back to your original question about the firing of Bishop Strickland. Why would that be surprising? All of this addresses that very question. Why would any of this be surprising? We have to face, we have to face reality ourselves and see what's happening and accept it. And um, yes, we can explain it to somewhat, to some extent. Perhaps there are some things we can't explain, but our faith tells us what we need to know. And we know what we need to do. We need to believe the traditional Catholic faith. As Father, as Dom Murray said, well, get the catechism, learn the catechism of the faith, the true catechism of the true faith. Learn that first, and then practice the faith, the old traditional Catholic faith, uh, which is never old, right? Uh, for us, it is, it is like, it is not new, it's not old, it's eternal, right? Uh, it is, it is the teaching of Christ here. Uh, that's what we have to cling to. Well, Tom, I, I know you had a number of questions that you wanted to get to, but and there were a number of other things that were worth mentioning to here, too. Francis uh, actually inviting a Mason to address the Vatican's uh, conclave about the, the, uh, the climate, right? Yeah. Again, environmentalism. Uh, inviting a, a chief mason to uh, address uh, the prelates of the church on the question of climate change, the new religion. Okay. Yeah. 
Perhaps if you if you're up to it, I know we don't have an awful lot of time, but because we have a lot of questions, you've told me that. Maybe we could quickly go through these, and I can just make a few really quick comments about them. Sure. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, the first one we have was asking about the Pact of the Catacombs. He said that uh, he's uh, he's heard more and more about this Pact of the Catacombs, and he's wondering if you could explain exactly what that is and how it's being used by the modernists to, to steer the conciliar church. Uh, yes. Again, I'm trying to be brief, okay? Um, toward the end of Vatican II, Second Vatican Council, there were about 42 prelates, bishops, including cardinals, who met at the what they call the underground basilica, attached to the catacombs of Domitilla in Rome, or outside of Rome, to the south of Rome. Um, and attached to those catacombs of Domitilla, there is a, a basilica that was actually dedicated to two martyrs, Narius and Echelaeus, who were actually attached to the household of Domitilla, who herself was related to the royal family, the uh, imperial family of the Flavians. <clears throat> We're talking, going back very early on in the church's history. These bishops, at the end of Vatican II, met down in that basilica, underground, and they basically made a pact with each other that they would work tirelessly to actually modernize the church and put the church at the service of mankind, as though it had not been there. Rather than at the service of God, they made a pact to change the church to basically make it essentially a Masonic institution to serve mankind. And um, they were all modernists. They um, all subscribed to the modernist errors. And um, they made this pact, basically, to put to death the old church as, as, it, as it was and to um, uh, bring out of the ashes of the old church this new, this new religion, the religion of the world. There's a lot of information out, out there about the Pact of the catacomb, Catacombs, and I would suggest if somebody actually looked that up, uh, they'd find um, there are books that have been written about this very subject. But it's of very great interest because we see now that there were those who were involved in this Pact of the Catacombs who, throughout the entire history after Vatican II, were completely given over to creating this new church outlined in their pact, and uh, that they lead directly to Francis and what Francis is doing today. Okay. Um, another question that Father had... Uh, have you ever heard of uh, the so-called Jesus Prayer? One of our viewers says that several of his Eastern and uh, Oriental Orthodox acquaintances have asked him about this, and if, if this is something that Catholics uh, that, that Catholics do, it's just a tradition in the Catholic Church to pray the uh, the so-called Jesus Prayer. Well, you know, Tom, you start asking, well, what is the Jesus Prayer? And there are people who have different ideas, and evidently the Jesus Prayer, so-called, has evolved over time. Some say it goes back into, even to the 6th century and um, consists of basically what we pray in the divine office in Latin. Deus in adjutorium meum intende, domine adjuvandum festina. Lord, come to my aid. Lord, hasten to help me. And it involves chanting, saying those words interiorly in your mind over and over and over and over again, sort of like a mantra. Okay? 
And uh, in the course of time, then others have substituted other words for the Jesus prayer. Most recently, someone suggested, well, the Jesus prayer is, O Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, like the publican said, who stood in the back of the temple, right? Not even lifting his eyes to heaven, but just beating his breast and saying, O Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. But what these, all of these formulas have in common is they involve repeating and repeating and repeating over and over and over again. Dozens, perhaps hundreds of times, the same words. And in the, in the course of time, this has been related to consciousness of parts of the body, where someone is bowed over and, and is conscious of his stomach, his bowels, or his heart, or somehow related to, uh, it's sort of like, what are they, somasm, or whatever they call it, something to do with the body. And um, there are those who find this uh, much too related to uh, oriental mystical cults of what has become of this so-called Jesus prayer. Now, the prayers that I just mentioned in Latin or in English, O Lord, come to my aid, or Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, are perfectly good and perfectly fine. And any Catholic can and should pray them, uh, meaning more than just say them. But the so-called Jesus prayer phenomenon has been condemned by the church in various ways at various times and voices in the church because the way it's it's evolving in the course of time is almost like a mantra where you're saying these words over and over again and they become basically just a cant without any real meaning uh, and one becomes mindlessly saying these things over and over again. And the result of this is supposed to take you through three stages. And in the third stage, you have this theosis stage where you experience God as the uncreated light. And no wonder, you know, this, this whole idea of this oriental mysticism, and let's face it, the Orthodox are really into this, the Orthodox are not really into uh, theology as we know it in the West, which is very rational. It's faith-seeking understanding, as St. Anselm said. Theology is faith-seeking understanding, as it goes back to the doctrines of the faith that God has revealed to us as truth for our minds. Faith then seeks understanding in applying our human reason to the truths of faith. In the East, it's much more a mystical idea. And you see this even in the pagan mystical religions of, again, experiencing, feeling, and so on. And this uh, idea of the Jesus prayer, sitting there and, um, you know, reciting this, this kind of mantra over and over again, uh, even if there are words from the gospel, still, and with the idea, even focusing on chakras or points of the body, uh, with the idea that it's going to elevate you by reciting that mantra to this theosis state where you then experiencing the uncreated light of God. Well, no wonder, you know, there are those who have found this to be 
not only suspect, but very dangerous. And even leading in the direction of a heresy condemned by the church as quietism. So one has to be very careful. If, you know, why we would, why would we say, well, say this is a Jesus prayer or that is a Jesus prayer. I mean, any, any true prayer would qualify. You would think if it's offered to the Father through our Lord Jesus Christ, I mean, it's all Jesus prayer. All prayer has to be offered through the Son of God right now. No one can come to the Father except through me. So even the idea of saying, well, that's a Jesus prayer, implying that you mean there are prayers that aren't Jesus prayers? But that's not true. I mean, all true prayer has to go through the Son of God. They all have to be Jesus prayers in that sense. So the very concept to me is like antithetical to the faith. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> but as I say, in the divine office, we see many times every day, uh, oh, Lord, come to my aid. Oh, Lord, make haste to help me. We pray it in Latin, praying in Greek or in English. has the same meaning. But I would never, and the church would never want me to just keep saying that over and over again until it becomes kind of mantra so that I can then somehow be raised to the level of having an experience of the uncreated light of God, which is impossible. Yeah. Um, because the uncreated is God himself. And how can I have a vision of the divine light, which is the, the uncreated light of God, in this life? It, it is totally contrary to Catholic belief. And if that's what they mean by it, then it, we have to re absolutely reject it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, maybe just one more, Father, because it's, it's uh, topical. We're in the month of November, the month uh, the church is dedicated to the poor souls in purgatory, one of our... Uh, viewers asked about the uh, the souls in purgatory and if uh, our guardian angels are able to intercede for us, uh, are per able to intercede for the poor souls in purgatory, and if so, in what ways do they actually intercede for us? Well, uh, can our guardian angels pray for us? Um, they, they can. They are among the saints in heaven insofar as they are sanctified, an angel. They have the beatific vision. As our Lord says, <clears throat> the guardian angels see, see God in heaven even now, while they are serving us here on earth. And they glorify God in heaven. Um, but the question um, of whether they can pray for us in purgatory, um, that's, a, that's another question, you know. That's a, that's a question I have never really seen addressed, whether our guardian angels accompany us to purgatory, whether they simply leave us in purgatory, <laughs> They're at, then they you know, are in heaven, uh, uniquely in heaven. I mean, I, I would think that uh, the, the guardian angels are with us throughout until we're actually saved. Obviously, they don't go to hell with us, clearly. No doubt about that. But, you know, theologically, yes, they might accompany us through this life. And after we depart this life and we're judged, then the guardian angel would, would have ended his service to us. It's quite possible that his service concerns us here in this life, that that is God, what God wants him to do. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I understand that the individual asked about um, have, uh, you know, religious saints and so on have, have had souls from purgatory appear to them. And they ask, have I had that experience as a priest? And the answer is, no, I haven't. Uh, have I heard of similar stories from any of our priests? 
uh, in our society. I have not heard any of our priests say, a soul from purgatory has appeared to me. When we go to Rome with our students, we often go to the Purgatorian Museum, and we see the, the marks of those um, the, who did appear, who did come from purgatory, and imprinted their hands on wood or on a page of a breviary. And yes, it, it's, it's very clear, this is a human handprint here. I mean, even down to the fingerprints, practically, scorched into a page or into a block of wood. Uh, and this is a visitation from an actual soul from purgatory asking for prayers. I think all of our priests have probably had the experience. Uh, I have, certainly. Uh, and I, that's why I think others have, too. Of being called to homes where strange things are happening. Uh, some figure is appearing. And some of these are more credible than others. Okay? Uh, but there are certain indications that something's going on that is not readily explained by any natural means. Okay? But anyway, what I, what I found, for what it's worth, is there are troublesome presences and prayers that can be offered to chase them away, to drive them away. There are definitely malicious or malevolent spiritual presences in certain places, okay? That can be driven out by prayer and by the, notably the prayer of the church and the exorcism of the place. It's different from the exorcism of a person because when the devil possesses a person, his presence there, uh, the satanic presence there, is a different, on a different level. But an evil presence of an evil spirit in a place is something that I think most priests probably have had to deal with at one time or another. Um, but I, I have also found that there are reported times presences that are spoken of by children who say, well, I saw this figure coming down the, the stairs, this uh, unidentifiable un thing or person, actually, and I did not feel threatened by this. But this thing kind of showed itself to me and does so periodically. And perhaps multiple members of the family say this. And um, I, I believe that this can be the presence of a soul in purgatory asking for prayers. They're not malicious or malevolent spirits who torment those who live in the house. But they are simply making themselves known. Is this something non-Catholic to suggest this? No, quite the contrary. When I was at Stift Wilton in Innsbruck, Austria, uh, as a theology student there at the University of Innsbruck, there was a rather well-known story about a Klopfgeist, a knocking ghost, who actually did periodically manifest himself, and it was obvious that he was seeking prayers. He wasn't tormenting or afflicting, terrifying people, but just making his presence known to ask for prayers. And when the prayerful response was given, when someone who had a visitation like that prayed, <clears throat> then all was, then, then the presence left as well, was satisfied. Can God allow souls in purgatory to do that? We know, we have the stories, even of saints, uh, with visitations from souls in purgatory who are allowed by God to come and ask for prayers. There's a whole story behind the knocking ghost here. 
which I won't go into now because of the length of time involved here. But one of the uh, the canons, these are canons regular, not monks, the Shishtithilton, uh, actually identified who who it was um, and uh, who was seeking those prayers and had been for the previous 400 years or more uh, coming and, and asking prayers. It was a member of the community who had gone by bad, who had gone wrong, fallen afoul of his vows. <clears throat> and uh, how, how he identified this, this poor soul, literally poor soul, in purgatory, is, I think, an interesting story, but I'm not going to tell a story right now. Anyway, um, so, yes, I, I think we've, uh, priests have had the experience of um, hearing of spirits, malevolent or otherwise, um, uh, you might say manifesting or showing themselves in certain places. And, um, you know, the distinction between a malicious spirit who is out to terrify and terrorize individuals or a family is very different presence from one who is there simply by the grace of God asking for prayers mm -hmm. and trying to induce the people there to pray for them. Um, so in any case, I, I don't know if that really answers the question of that particular writer, but we'd probably let it go okay. <laughs> at that right now. So, uh, yeah. it's a, not a bad question at all to ask during this month of the Holy Souls. So, yeah. you know, when we ask, as you ask at the beginning of the show, to pr prayers, pray for the souls in purgatory, obviously. Yeah. And let's say it goes without saying, but it needs to be said. Yeah ask for mercy for them too yeah. well father thanks for being here tonight appreciate uh getting through all of that and uh again a very blessed birthday to you and god well bless you. thank you very much Tom. i appreciate that i'm still amazed that god is putting up with me but <laughs> i sh i'm very grateful to him and the prayers of those who offer uh for me uh, they're much needed and uh uh they certainly well saint paul said uh the grace of god has not been void in him I hope to be able to say that someday, too. <laughs> so thanks for your prayers. Yes, Father, thank you. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.